What little attention that most high schools in the United States pay to India is, I think, entirely devoted to its existence as a British colony. And I really couldn't tell you what the average high school is supposed to teach about India. Um, I think I would be depressed to find out. So I think it is possible to make it through 12 years of schooling in this country and not know what India is or where it is or anything else about it. But I'm now going to try to fill the void a little bit. First, let me start by saying when I say that the term the Orient is on here, this word means something else today, right? Like for most Americans, when they hear the word Orient or Oriental, somehow that has come to mean China or Ch Chinese things, right? Um, and it might vaguely also mean other places in Asia, but not really, right? Most people, if I ask someone's grandmother, is India the Orient or Korea? or Malaysia, or maybe Japan, I guess. I don't know. It's a little bit odd. This word, when it was first used in English, meant everything to the east, which meant that Egypt is the Orient, right? Like, for, for British colonial people, South Africa is the Orient, because it is east of England. The Orient is huge. Nothing... There's, it is not one culture or one place. India, of course, is part of the Orient, as is Australia. So how this word changed to mean for most Americans, I guess, China, is its own story. But I want you to understand, when we say, when I'm talking about India, it is part of the colonial Orient. I'm going to show you this map so you understand that India is not only a British colony. It has been as heavily colonized and as fought over as been a product of colonial competition like anywhere else, like Africa or South America or North America. But what you'll begin to notice is how little of the inland territory is being fought over, right? They're fighting over harbors, over trade cities, right? These little dots on the outside of India. Right? Even the Dutch are involved. Even the Danish. Most people do not think of the Danish as being like empire builders, but even they controlled ports in India. The main competitor for the British Empire over control of India was France. They controlled a large chunk of it, but noticeably only on the eastern half. Right? The western half was out of their reach. And then, of course, most famously, the, the British Empire. The problem here is that this set of dates does not mean they controlled all of India from 1612 to 1947. They controlled all of India from the late 1800s. Most of that time, they were like everyone else. They had a handful of port cities that they claimed. So, why the attention to the ports? 
because this is a very different kind of colonization. This is not like what we saw in the Americas at all. This is entirely focused on trade, the spice trade. Most spices that Europeans would consider exotic spices are not grown in India. They come here from somewhere else. But by taking control of this wholesale marketplace, they cut out the middleman. Right? They don't actually need to know where the nutmeg is. They can buy nutmeg here, or cinnamon, or cinnabar, or cloves, or fill in the blank. So let me talk a little bit about what is going on before the Europeans show up. Again, for most Americans, if they know this word, monsoon, it's just a fancy way to say a really big rainstorm. Right? Like a colossal rainstorm. Some rainstorm that lasts a couple days and maybe drops three inches of rain, or maybe five, inch, five inches of rain. That's not what it means in India. Okay? Monsoon like many of the words we're going to be using today, is originally Arabic. Mausum in Arabic means season, right? Like fall, like winter, like summer, like a season of time. So the monsoon is not one event. It's how you describe the fact that in most of India, there is a dry season and a wet season. And the dry season is exceedingly dry and the wet season is exceedingly wet. But most importantly, it comes with a change in the wind, right? One season, the wind predominantly blows west, and in the other season, it predominantly blows east. And what this means is large sections of India are essentially desert with scrubland, lots of open dirt, not very good for farming, and then half the year, they're lush, tropical, almost rainforests. It's the same place, but for about eight months in the year, it receives zero precipitation. And then for a couple weeks, it's basically flood season with a little bit of rain following regularly until it dries out again. And it's as regular as clockwork. This is where the Kamal comes in. Before the Europeans arrived, India was already at the center of a massive oceanic trade network that the Europeans had no part in, that the Europeans had no understanding how this functioned. So let me back up, right? So I'm telling you, this system of sailing with a Kamal has been in use in the Indian Ocean for a very long time, more than a thousand years. When the Europeans show up, they have a completely different understanding, right? They're not sailing with Kamals. They're using the very early form of the system that we have, the idea of latitude and longitude. They're sailing with the winds, but they're also mostly sailing within sight of land, right? Even the early Portuguese and Spanish sailors, you're thinking of them like, oh, they're like Columbus. No, Columbus, again, part of the reason that made him, what made him stand out so much is like, of course we have to sail outside the sight of land. There's no other way around it. We're just going to go that way as long as we can. When the Portuguese are rounding Africa, they round Africa and they just follow the coast 
all the way, passing these cities full of little boats that they think are a joke, right? The Portuguese vessels are quite large. The little ships that do this trade, there might be five people on that ship. There might be 10. They're tiny, right? They, 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 don't, want, they don't need a big crew because they're not going to be there that long. So the Portuguese sail past on their mammoth ships and they're like, well, what a joke. These people have no trade without realizing that the people on that little boat you're laughing at make bank every year doing this in a way that the Portuguese have no idea how it, how it can even function. So colonization from Europe is a much bigger endeavor. For one thing, they're coming from the other side of the planet, right? It involves having the right number of people, people with good training, people who can actually sail these ships around the world, the tools necessary. And I don't mean Kamals, right? The Kamal is never a tool used by Europeans. I mean compasses, right? I mean maps, I mean the, the, the know-how. And of course, they need some way to transport these things. But of course, early modern Europe is not that highly developed, which is to say that most colonies are run by one of three options, run by the church, run by the state, which I mean some kingdom, or run by a company, a, a corporation. The church's colonies at first are the most widespread, but they're not typically run to make, make a profit. They're typically run to spread the church, right? Build churches, save souls, and they're typically losing money because that's not the goal. The state is in it to try to make money, but they have an eternal problem with corruption, which is to say most of these states have an aristocracy, right? People who get their jobs because they were born into it, not because they somehow like earned it. And that level of corruption is problematic. So it's the corporations, the markets that actually run the colonies, right? All of the most successful colonies in Asian history are those dominated by businesses. But businesses are also the least ethical of the three. They're the least concerned with the welfare of the people involved in the colonies. India and China and all of Asia saw European colonization of some type or the other. Now, yes, there are certain countries in Asia that are never taken over by foreign colonization, but they are all visited by one of these three types. So here's a map from the year 1502 showing this northern coast of Africa, the Arabian Peninsula, a little bit of Iran and Iraq, and the coast of India. This is not the, the product of European map making necessarily. I wonder, yes, yes, this is a European map. But they know about all these cities because when they arrive, this trade already exists. Right? The Portuguese show up. They find some maps written in Arabic, and they, they take them, they copy them. They learn that, yes, these are the coastal ports that we need to know about. We need to know that this port exists, and this one, and this one, and this one, and this one, compared to these ones over here. They are not yet aware that this trade exists, or maybe they're vaguely aware, but they don't, they're not going to take that over. Within a few years, all the maps of the Indian Ocean cut out Africa entirely for a couple of reasons. One, these African ports are closed to them, right? The empire that controls these ports is not open for business. 
because they understand that the Europeans are their competitors. The number one thing that is going to set Africa on a downward spiral is not necessarily slavery. It is the removal of Africa from the world trade network. Prior to the arrival of the Europeans in the Indian Ocean, if you had nutmeg in Malacca, it got to Europe by bouncing here to here to here to here to here around Africa, down to the other side, and from there up to Europe. When the Europeans are just like, you know what, let's just sail around Africa. And they show up at these ports and they say, tell you what, I'm going to buy the cinnamon from you. I'm going to pay you five times what my competitors over here are offering you. And they can pay them 10 times, they can pay them 20 times, right? Because the amount of profit they're going to make by sailing directly from here to Amsterdam makes up for it. The economy of Eastern Africa has not really recovered from this. So, the Omani Empire is probably the most important state you've never heard of. Um, one of our earliest allies, United States, I mean, right? When the United States is pretty young in its early days, we have a, a trade alliance with this country, but no one cares about it, right? No one, we don't study this. You'll notice that this is the coast of Africa. These are the modern political borders. The Omani Empire has nothing to do with these political borders, right? The modern map of Africa is drawn by European colonizers a hundred years ago. Before it was colonized by the Europeans, there was this massive state. We call it the Omani Empire because traditionally its rulers came from Oman. But what unites these people is their language and their culture. Swahili, right? Swahil in Arabic means the coast. You begin to understand why it's called that, right? These are the people of the coast, the language of the coast. It's a mishmash of the Bantu languages of Africa, Arabic, Persian, and up until the 1800s, it's one of the wealthiest countries on the planet. When we signed our alliance with the Omani Empire, when the United States signed this alliance, we received three ships crammed full with their hospitality, with their things, right? Giraffes and lions, um, both living and stuffed, um, a mountain of jewelry, most, most of which, and again, to be clear, the Omani Empire is saying this as a personal gift to the current president, Martin Van Buren. He just gives it all to his wife. And the Congress says, whoa, 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 no, no, this is a gift for the country, okay? You can't just give this stuff to your wife. And Martin Van Buren says, yeah, but it says very clearly here, this is a gift from them to me. Um, so one of the first things that happens in the history of the Smithsonian Museum is they take control of this collection. So if you want to see these things, they come, came to us. They're in the vault, in the archives of the Smithsonian Museum. But again, this is not a part of American history, right? We don't, we don't learn about the Omani Empire. Their principal competition is with the Europeans who have colonized India, right? That's their main concern is their source of spice, their source of trade is being taken over by these Europeans who have settled themselves in the ports of India and said, we'll tell you what, we'll pay you five times, ten times what they're paying. The Omani form an alliance with the British in the 1700s to try to take out the Portuguese. 
And this works spectacularly, right? The number one reason that the British are able to take over India is because they have the aid of the Omani Empire. But of course, the British don't get rich by signing checks, right? Um, so the moment that they take over India, they burn all their treaties with the Omani and go to war with them. At which point, we show up on the scene, and the United States signs a treaty with the Omani Empire saying, we'll help you against the British. Yeah, no, we did not, in fact. That was the hope, right? The idea is that the Omani were hoping that we would give them cannons and ships and go to war with Britain. That was the understanding, like, hey, America, you just kicked Britain's butt in this war. Why don't you help us, and we'll do the same, and we'll be brothers in arms. And Martin Van Buren said, thank you for the ships, but no, no. Well, we're more than happy to open trade with you. Which is to say, I'll say again, right? The most important African country y'all have probably never heard of. Um, I get it, right? It's, we don't have time to study every part of world history, but this one's kind of a big deal. People have this understanding that Africa just had no big countries or empires or civilization before the Europeans showed up. And not only is that comically false, but it's like, this is not ancient history, guys. This is the 1800s, right? Like before the Civil War is going on and during and after, there is this massive state. And I, I understand this map, it's just a small image, you know? Like, you maybe have a hard time visualizing how much land this is. This is more land than is in the continental United States. Yeah, it's spread out over a long distance. But this is a massive piece of territory. Okay. Change pace again. This guy is not Omani. This is Alfonso de Albuquerque. That's who Albuquerque is named after. Well, the same house, I should say. So he is a Portuguese colonizer. I'm changing pace because I now want to talk to you about what a factory is. Not a factory like today, like, you know, you go someplace and there's a, you know, I don't know, there's some smoke and there's some engines and there's people making stuff. He arrives in India in 1503. By 1510, he has, quote unquote, conquered most of the eastern coast. This is not a conquest like the Americans. This is not him at the head of an army, right? The people in India are not... I mean, again, India is not the Aztecs, right? They also, that's where cannons come from. They have armies, they have horses, they have guns and cannons. He conquers it by signing treaties, by saying, tell you what, let us open up shop here and we will sell you at a much better rate, right? It's good for business. The people in India are more than happy to do trade with them because they're going to make more money. Much has been made about Alfonso de Albuquerque as being the sort of founding father of world trade, of this global network, because he's also going to connect the Spice Islands themselves. His dream was to have a direct route from the Spice Islands to Lisbon in Portugal. Didn't happen because the ships just weren't up to snuff. There was, it was just too long a distance. But all of this is possible because of his use of this European technology, I'll say, of a factory. So what on earth is a factory? A factory is a fort, a military installation set up around a warehouse. Okay, so a warehouse sounds like a really boring, stupid thing, right? Like think of your Amazon fulfillment center 
There's some building full of a bunch of crates, and some people work there. But what you're failing to see there is what a warehouse's real job is, is let's say I'm coming from the factory that makes something that everybody wants. I don't know. Um, the factory that makes, uh, I don't know, like nice earbuds or something, or like beats, or I don't know, Sprite. I'm coming from the factory, right? The factory does nothing to make it. And so I've come to your town with 15 tons of these things. I can't sell them all, right? There aren't enough people. And if I sell them all at once, I'm going to get a really bad price for the last one. The first one everyone wants, and I can have like an auction. Who wants this? Oh, I'll give you $1,000. I'll give you whatever. Fine, great. But the last one, well, everybody already has three. So what I need is a warehouse, right? I'm going to have this big bucket of stuff that everybody wants, and I'm only going to sell five a day. And if I need to, I'm actually going to take the stuff in the warehouse and I'll sell it on to somebody else to sell. The problem is, the people in this town, maybe they really want what I have. Maybe they're going to break in in the middle of the night and steal that stuff. Or maybe they'll say, you guys are robbers and like just no good scumbags. Why do you charge us $500 for this thing when you have a million of them? How do you sleep at night? What lets, what, what lets you get away with this? And the answer is because they have the gun. Right? The factory is not just a warehouse. It is an armored warehouse. It is a warehouse with a military detail of people with cannons and guns whose only job is to make sure that nobody breaks into the warehouse. So just to give you a sense, right? Like each one of these places that Albuquerque went... He's setting up a network of factories. Each one of these, there is a little building somewhere full of stuff protected by hundreds of guys with guns. So, factory. Yeah, this gives you a sense of the idea of a foreign warehouse that is protected, right? This other kind of factory. First established by the Portuguese, but very quickly used by all other European nations. Within 100 years, there's over 50 of these things. And this becomes the, the model. Like, world trade today depends on this kind of factory. Every major warehouse you can think of has a security detail. You might not even realize it's necessary or why it's necessary. Now, my problem with this is most people will say this is the first global trade market. But that's not really true, right? Like, the system that the Portuguese are replacing was already a global trade market, right? There's always been some nutmeg and some cloves making it all the way to Europe. I mean, as going back 3,000 years, we can find plenty of evidence of goods and materials that are only found in, let's say, Japan or northern China or Malacca, and we can find it in, like, Iceland. There's been world trade. What this does is this is the first truly global trade that's a monopoly, where one person, one company, has access to everything, where he can buy the Malacca here, or he can buy the, the nutmeg in Malacca, and he can sell it to India, and he can sell it to Africa, and he can sell it to Europe or the Americas. So one person suddenly is taking all of the profit, all of the money, instead of what traditionally had been make a little bit of money here, and they sell it on a little bit of money here, a little bit of money here, a little bit of money here. Now it is pure profit for one, one person. 
Now, of course, Portugal, within a little bit after uh, Albert Gurgi's lifetime, is absorbed into the Spanish Empire, when they also absorb the what we now call the Netherlands, right? And th- th- this same system of a monopoly trade network allows Europe to... Uh, I don't want to put this in the right way. Most Americans don't realize how intrinsically connected the different countries in Europe are. We think of them as different. We think of them as if cultural and religious differences. Like the Dutch are nothing like the Portuguese or nothing like the Spanish or nothing like the Italians. Nothing could be further from the truth, right? They are much more similar and linked than our understandings of their culture or cuisine would lead us to believe. All of these people are connected, largely through their shared colonization. Right? That's that's what connects them, is the way that they colonize and exploit the rest of the world. So here is a typical factory in eastern India. What you see here is the actual offices. Like these are the buildings where the actual warehouse would be. So I don't know what might be there. Tea or opium or some mixture of spices. Nice little palatial gardens. This is where the, the bigwigs also live. There's a wall here. And this is where the military encampment is. And they have their own port. Right? Everything is controlled from the European side. Who lives over here? We don't know or care. This is very different from the kind of colonization we see in the Americas. Right? The colonization of the Americas is totally replacing the native population, if possible. We're here, the native population has nothing to do with it. We're just here for the money. Just here for the trade. So, how this is going to tie in on Friday. Friday, we're going to discuss specifically Hong Kong, the Qing Empire in China, and the Opium Wars. This is why Hong Kong is called Hong Kong. It is the center of the factory system in China. Each one of these little embassies, there's the United States one, is a factory. It is a militarily guarded warehouse where their job is to buy tea from China. But China doesn't want to sell them tea because there's nothing that China wants. The way through that is, is opium. We're going to get there. So, the Qing Dynasty, or the Qing Empire, I should make this clear, right? The Q makes a CH sound, right? There are many ways to, to use uh, Roman letters to write out Chinese. In this way, if you see a Q, it means Ch, right? So the Qing Dynasty controls China from the 17th century to the 20th century. The modern state of China today, the People's Republic of China, is only slightly older than my dad. Right? It comes into being in the 1940s, after 30 years of chaos and civil war after the fall of the Qing Empire. Now, the fact that very few students in America learn about this is not an accident. Okay? The modern country of China is actively telling people, our country is 5,000 years old, 5,000 years of Chinese whatever. My general rule is, the older a country says it is, the younger it is. So, 
if I were to look at a typical population map of China, the People's Republic of China, I would just point this out to you that the vast majority of the population is along the coast. There's this uh, sort of the two competing bread baskets on the Yangtze and the Yellow River. And then a lot of kind of like the sort of North Dakota area, so to speak, of very sparsely populated. And then whatever this is. And what that is are a lot of people who are not Chinese, whatever this means. When I say the word Chinese, you imagine someone who speaks Chinese, looks Chinese, eats what you think is Chinese food, whether that is actually true or not. But China is much more diverse than the United States or most countries that you can think of. Right? When I say the name of a country, you think, well, that's, that's who lives there, right? The Turks or the French or the Japanese. China, as we understand it, has these borders so that it includes these Turks and these Tibetans. These borders are not created in the 20th century. These borders are created by the Qing Empire, which conquered these foreign people, people who do not speak Chinese, who don't look Chinese, who don't act Chinese, who are not Chinese. And this includes this very populated southern area, which is this mixture of Thai and Vietnamese ethnic people. The fact that you have not taught this is not an accident. Since its creation, the country of China has had one overarching policy, create a unified Chinese identity. We want to make sure that all of these people are teaching their children Chinese, but they don't. Right? So when you hear about trouble in China, some outbreak of violence, some killings, some internments, nine times out of 10, it is China's inability to control this massive part of their population that doesn't consider themselves Chinese, right? If, if the Chinese government were to fall tomorrow, most of these people would consider themselves liberated. Again, just to be clear, right? So this population of people is related to and part of this shared cultural area. In the same way that the Tibetans spill over here into Nepal and Bhutan. And the Turks, well, there are Turks from here all the way to Turkey. But the country of Turkey does not span all of Asia. In the same way that there is no Swahili country, right? Instead, there are Swahili speakers spread across five different countries in Africa. What if all those Swahili speakers got together? It would be the richest, most powerful country in Africa. Why don't we want that to come to, into being? I don't know, you tell me. So again, this map hides that, right? Because the sheer number of Chinese people, which again is not an accident, right? This is the product of state policies. I know everyone says, oh, but the Chinese are only allowed to have one kid each. This is a, there's a reason we all know about this. The Chinese government is actively telling us, look, 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 no, 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 no. No, no, we're trying to, we're not trying to outpopulate those people. Except that's exactly what happens. The number, the way you get out of the one child policy, move to one of these other areas. So there are millions of Chinese people, ethnically Chinese people, who live in Tibet or Xinjiang or Manchuria, specifically so they can have more kids. 
Oh, that's genius. For the last two, three years, there's been a massive system of concentration camps that have opened throughout eastern, sorry, western China. Over a million people are currently locked up in concentration camps, and no one cares. Why are they locked up? Because they're not Chinese, and they refuse to teach their children Chinese. So what are the concentration camps? Re-education camps, says the Chinese government. Whatever. All of this is just to make clear to you that on the same scale, this population bloom, this is why we don't really compare to them, right? The idea that to find the closest thing to this, you need to basically get in a car and drive from Long Island to D.C. and say, man, this whole country is one big city. But once you get past D.C., the city ends. This city doesn't end. Right? You can drive a whole day and a night and another day and never leave the city. Save for India, of course. So, the Qing Dynasty. It is the least studied of the Chinese dynasties because it's the one that the communists replaced. Okay? So the, the current government of China does not want its own people to know about the Qing Dynasty and it certainly doesn't want to help anyone else learn about it. The only thing that really unites the Chinese uh, dissidents is their hatred of non-Chinese rule. And the Qing were not Chinese. If you're studying 5,000 years so-called of Chinese history, what you're going to learn is most of the dynasties that ruled China were not Chinese. They didn't speak Chinese, they came from somewhere else and conquered China. Most famously, the Mongols. But the Mongols are not the only ones, right? like the Qing. They're also called the Manchurian dynasty, because that's, that's where they're from. They're from northern China, from Manchuria. People who are related to the Mongols speak a related language, live in tents, you know, raise horses and sheep. We are going to spend a whole class later on on this problem, the Great Divergence, which is right here. Right here is your typical map of GDP over time. Here's the United States, that rocket ship going up, and here's China plummeting down to Earth. The question is, why? If I was going to be cute about it, I'd say the answer is really easy. And in fact, it makes sense why the United States is going up and China's going down. Because this period right here is exactly the opium trade. This is when it becomes the European model that the United States joins in on of saying, China, there is nothing you can do to stop us from selling you opium. So let me stop real quick. What, what's opium? Yeah, so you guys may have heard of the so-called opioid epidemic, right, going on in this country, in this state, in this county. That's right. So the, the plant that opium comes from is poppy, right? And poppies are grown and have always been grown in northern India and places that we now we call Afghanistan. Not the only place it's grown, but it's one of the places that does the best. It's, a special, it's the poppy flower, right? Poppy flowers are lovely little flowers, but that poppy plant itself can also produce this drug, right? It's where we get morphine, where we get heroin, right? So if you've heard of heroin, you know what opium is. It was not a drug that was commonly found in China. But 
the trade imbalance that Europe faced with China, which is that China had many, many things that Europeans wanted, not just tea, right? They wanted silk. They wanted a lot of trade goods that only China could provide. And China said, well, unfortunately, there isn't a whole lot that you have that we want. So if you want to buy a ton of tea, what are you going to give us for it? Oh, we'll give you silver. Okay, fine. That's great. Until the silver runs out. England tried to sell them woolen clothing. And China says, like, guys, we have sheep. Right? If we, <laughs> we have sheep. We, if we wanted wool, we wouldn't buy it from the other side of the planet. The genius becomes when they realize, listen, what we can do is smuggle in opium, sell it to the local people. They're going to pay us money. We'll use that local money to buy tea. We're gonna, that's what we're going to talk about on Friday. But I want you to realize that in the year 1800, the, the life expectancy, the wages paid, like in all ways, China under the Qing was as developed as anywhere else in Europe, or more so. Like people have this idea that by 1800 already, life is just better in London. It's just better in Paris than anywhere else on the planet. That's not the case. But a century of opium saturation destroys China brings the Qing Empire to its knees, and, yeah, does not really recover until, well, I don't know, 1980s? And again, this colonization is actively de-industrializing, right? When the Europeans colonize, they don't want local competitors, right? They will, they will actively make sure that the people they are competing with are taken out. People move away from the cities and into farming or mining or oil refinery. So I'm just I'm preparing you because we're going to spend a lot more time talking about China than we have up to this point. All right. So you might be wondering, well, how are these masterful sailors able to do it? If the Europeans are terrified to leave the site of land, what makes this possible? The monsoon. They know, predictably, one half of the year, everyone goes this way. When the winds change, predictably, everyone turns around. So that this whole coast of Africa, which provides them with a limitless supply of ivory, gold, gems, and of course all kinds of food, which they trade for spice, silk, and other kinds of gems. They are able to do this because they have a kamal. So to sail the Indian Ocean, you need two things. You need to know where, which way is the wind blowing, and how far south and north am I? The latitude, right? I need to know what level am I on the globe. Because the monsoon wind is just going to take you straight across. If you're here, and you set off in your little boat, and you're aiming for this port, you need to know, am I heading too far south? Am I going to hit this port? That's not the end of the world. I, I want to hit land. But the spices I specifically want are here. So you need to know, how far south or north are you? And you really want to know, am I going to miss it entirely? Right? That's danger zone. I don't want to just sail off. Like, maybe I'll hit Sri Lanka, 
Or maybe I'll hit nothing until I get to Malacca, if I'm still alive. The winds control when you leave and when you return, right? That's, that's the easy part of it. The monsoon takes care of that. And the latitude, which you are responsible for, controls where you're going. Which port in Africa, which port in India are you reaching? And again, though you may not know the names of these cities off the top of your head, there are major ports all along both of these coasts. And there is a lingua franca. Even though the, all the people here and all the people here may not speak the same language, all of these port cities have a shared... Not exactly a lingua franca. It's a mixture of Arabic and Persian and Bantu, which in Africa we call Swahili. The specific ports carry specific goods. If you want gold, you go somewhere else, and if you want ivory, if you want corn or wheat, I should say corn, corn meaning grain. If you want wheat, oh, stay with me, projector, you'll go somewhere different. And the specific ports have specific relationships, right? That maybe these two are in competition with each other, so you definitely want to make sure you're going to the right one. Measuring the wind is easy because you just know it's April, the wind's going that way. It's June, the wind's going that way. How do you measure the latitude? This thing, a kamal. You can make one yourself. The problem is we can't use one. Not here. Europeans can't use one. It doesn't work. You need to be far enough south where you are relatively close to the equator. Because the understanding is you take this little piece of wood and string and you hold it out in front of your face. The goal is that the top of this piece of wood lines up with the North Star and the bottom lines up with the horizon. And, you know, the idea is that if I hold it really close to my face versus further away versus further away versus further, that tells me something. There's these little knots in the string. And so you just measure how many knots are between your face and the Kamal. And that will tell you how far south you are. Every little ship that sails the Indian Ocean in the pre-modern era has many of these. And if they lose that, they're toast. Right? Now, they'll probably still hit land. If they're lucky, they're always going to sail north then at that point. But this allows them to know with exact confidence we are at this level. Now, they don't have a latitude-longitude system, so they don't think I'm at 15 degrees south. They just know that this knot... This knot will take me to Zanzibar. This knot will take me to Calicut. This knot will take me to Goa. Right? They don't need to know numbers for these things. All they need to know is these specific knots line up with certain cities. And so for them, the idea of sailing outside of the sight of land is just a part of the game. Right? They understand that to make this voyage... If the winds are going strong, it doesn't take that long at all. Sometimes less than a week. Maybe only a few days. If you want to do the voyage this way, you'll be gone months 